Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, in the Beach Shack, we have Colin Hamilton, who I met through ocean ski paddling, but he has an amazing story of many years ago when he was an Olympian in the modern pentathlon. Now we go through all the events he had to do back in those days and how tough it was to perform at the highest elite level while at the same time you had to earn money and go to work. So let's sit back now and have a listen to my chat with Cole, better known as Hamo. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure to have Colin Hamilton now. He's a former Olympian also. I've done a fair bit of paddling with him recently and uh, he keeps me honest out in the ocean. Hamo, how are you, mate? Hoppo, how are you, mate? Good. Now, let's start way back when you were a young fellow and you, you grew up on the northern beaches? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, actually, I was born in New Zealand, moved to Australia when I was four, lived on the northern beaches, skipped around a lot, lived around the Wariwood area, and then in my teenage years, uh, lived in DY. And what was that like growing up as a young bloke? Yeah, look, you don't know how good you've got it. Uh, yeah, I, I had a really normal sort of beaches lifestyle. I surfed a hell of a lot and uh, I was always outdoors. So uh, my family, my parents uh, were really keen runners. So we did a lot of fun runs. In fact, back in the 80s, you could probably do a fun run every weekend of the year. And we pretty much did that. We traveled the whole state. We went as far north as say Nambucca or Tamworth. We do all the fun runs within the Sydney region. And, and I think we went to Griffith a few times. It's a fair trek. So, so we were really active as a family and um, I was, you know, pretty much led around by my parents who were avid runners and, yeah, that was a really good lifestyle. And how did you find the running in those days? Were you something that you struggled with or you thought you, you had a bit of natural ability? Look, I wasn't – I didn't know. I started really young, like I was eight years old, nine years old, and uh, I just followed the older people around and, and – it wasn't until I got into my early teens that, you know, I got competitive and I probably then I realised I was never going to be a world beater, but I just loved it. You know, it wasn't about competing. It was about competing, but it was it was just all I knew and I loved it. Hmm. And any other sports as a young one? You mentioned surfing. You got into surfing, and which most of us did as kids, especially living on the coast. Yeah, look, surfing was is probably still is my first love. You know, I I would be running like in my late teens over 100K a week, but I still find time to go surfing. So like it was a recreation, but ironically, you know, on, on the back of all that running and everything else I was doing, it's still another physical activity. But, you know, the, the joy of surfing is that even though it's an active sort of re- recreation, you can sit out there and you can chat and you can relax and enjoy the sunrise or the sunset. So it gives you everything. 
Yeah, it has. It's got a bit of everything going surfing, doesn't it? So something that uh, I really enjoy as well. So, but about, I wish I was better at um, at surfing and could have gone on a, a, a you know a pro surfer. Just a, a lot of my mates that came through Bronny ended up pro surfers. So that's something that uh, it looked like it was a, a great sport to be in. Yeah, mate. I think that's the same for me. If I if I can have my choice, that would be the uh, the profession I'd choose. Like, look at Kelly Slater. He's he's fifty plus, and he's he's been doing all this. I don't think I'm sure he does realize how good he's got it. But um, yeah, mate. What a what a lifestyle. Oh, and since he's probably what came through at 14, 15, 16 years of age, and he's basically went onto the tour and. You know, he's been doing it for a long, long time. And now, with your sporting background, do you think it's phenomenal, isn't it, how he's still going? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, I, look, it's a sport that lends itself to longevity, but, like, a sport like the activities as I, that I took place in, you know, running for in particular is incredibly demanding on the body. To, to think that you could remain competitive for that long is just – well, no one thought it was possible back in the 80s and 90s. It does happen now a lot more. I guess sports science helps and just our general way of approaching life helps. But, yeah, no, it was inconceivable. So you were saying about your running, how you're doing the 100K a week. In hindsight, looking back, do you think that was too much or people were learning in those days, weren't they, how much training to do? Yeah, look, it wasn't it wasn't like we did that every week of the year, but we had – we did – I think we are in a good – little squad on um, the northern beaches. I had a, a really good group of friends that we pushed each other. Actually, my dad was coaching us, so I've got to be careful what I say, you know. <laughs> but, uh, no, we, we followed the Lydiard method of, of training that he brought with him from New Zealand, so a really good preparation and build-up, which did include a lot of distance training. Uh, and then, you know, you, you moved into your intervals and other methods of training and, and he, he was always so very very aware of a decent taper so it was thought through but yeah like i'm sure it's changed a lot these days mate and and things like heart rate monitors and uh you know blood levels and things that they just weren't even discussed yeah mate i remember my first running experience back when i was a kid probably late 70s I think we were running in the, uh, the volley Dunlop, Dunlop volleys. Yeah, yeah. It was what, they were the running shoe back in those days. Yeah, there was a, the Dunlop KT26s and there was these Tiger G9s or something. They were basically just a yeah. thin few millimetres of rubber and they were your racing shoe. <laughs> Unbelievable, mate. Yeah, it's changed, hasn't it? Then I think Mizuno, I think the, the next stage was Mizuno shoe and that was, uh, that was like the, the next level altogether. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, no, nah, uh, look, I look around the shops now and you see the technology available and I feel old, but sometimes I think, oh, they're just getting soft. <laughs> but, um, look, it's a, like anything in life, you know, technology is there to make things easier for us and, and make us do things better and, and, and perform better. So, yeah, good luck. Good luck to the kids of today. <laughs> Mate, uh, now you did go on from your running and then, Explain what modern pentathlon is because that's something you went and represented Australia at the Olympic Games. But let's start from the beginning, how you got into it and, and what it's all about. Yeah, look, uh, look, like I said, I, I was never going to be a world-class athlete as a runner or a swimmer. 
I was really aware of that. But when I was young, I, I had a dream to go to the Olympics. I saw the Commonwealth Games in Christchurch and John Walker was this New Zealand runner that I just thought was incredible. I thought, I want to do that one day. I want to go to the Olympics. I actually, during my teenage years of running, I had a running partner named Alex Watson who most people would know for being a pentathlete that competed in the 1980, well, he didn't compete in 80, he could 84, 88 and 92 Olympics. Uh, and through getting to meet him and help him, him out to sort of introduce people to pentathlon, I, I got into it myself. Um, and, yeah, it was pretty early on. I, th- I thought, wow, this is a great way to travel and see the world because we, we were bringing, Alex was bringing pentathletes from Europe and, and America to our summertime to compete in events and to, to train and uh, introducing kids here to these people. And in return, I got access to, to com- accommodation in Europe and America so that I could, you know, basically it's like Airbnb of the 80s, really, just <laughs> go back and forth. So it, it was a vehicle to travel the world to compete and on the back of that, I ended up competing in world championships and, and in the long term, I ended up at the Olympic Games. So with the pentathlon, tell the, the young listeners now out there because it's not a, a prominent sport that's out there like your rugby league and, and all these sports at the moment, but what disciplines did you need to do? Yeah, yeah, actually probably should have mentioned that earlier. Um, it's a running, swimming, fencing, pistol shooting and show jumping. In my day, the run was a 4K cross country. Uh, the swim was 300 metres, could be long or short course. Show jumping, uh, it, was a, it was a good level, uh, standard height, but uh, a really good level of uh, show jumping. The fencing, we used an epee, which is a tradition. There's three uh, weapons you can use in fencing, but epee is the one you'd imagine, you know, you just fight. It's it's actually really good fun. You just The objective is just to hit the other person anywhere on the body. First to do it wins. And uh, the pistol shooting in back in my day was was with a 20, 22 rapid fire pistol, uh, twenty shots, uh, four times, four times through, five times each. And uh, uh, yeah, look, I apart from running and swimming, I started when I was about eighteen. I didn't know anything about the other sports. Uh, I had to start from scratch. But um, Australia is actually a really great environment to do any sport, and. And uh, show jumping in particular, we have access to some of the best coaches, the best horses, and the best riders just around the Sydney area. So if you're not a, if you're a good guy and you don't treat people poorly and and uh, you're, you're disciplined, um, most people will uh, you know help you out and uh, happily coach you. So uh, show jumping was good. The fencing, it's not a big sport here, but it's it, there is a healthy fencing community and, and likewise you can find people that are great coaches and good competitors and training partners. And the shooting, especially back in those days, is, there's uh, a lot of pistol clubs around and, and uh, you have to join, obviously, and there's a lot of rules around firearms. But um, it's not something I never imagined I'd do. But when I got into it, I actually found it really challenging and really satisfying. Well... With the fencing, did you find that something that was a bit difficult to start with when you, you'd never done that before? And how would you even start learning that it was a technique to it all? Uh, fencing, 
Yeah, look, like I said, I started in my late teens and uh, fencing is one of those sports you really need to pick up young. It's like boxing, I believe, you know. It's fast twitch, a lot of timing and a lot of good footwork. So I, I struggled in the fencing. Yeah, that was my weakest event. And uh, one, because I didn't take it up early enough. Two, just access to, you know, really high-level competition in a you know, week in, week out. Uh, but... Yeah, look, as at an international level, I struggled, but it's still incredibly satisfying. It was fun to do. Hard workout, very much like boxing. Now, the show jumping. Had you ridden a horse prior to getting into this? <laughs> no, mate, never. <laughs> oh, yeah, just like anyone else, you know, you, you went to the local pony sort of club or circus as, as a kid <laughs> with your parents. But, um, I love horse riding, mate. I don't do it anymore because it is a lifestyle. You've got to be totally committed to it. But I had access to really good coaching and really good horses and it took a good three years till I felt like I got to a level where I was competent. But once I got to that level, it was incredibly satisfying. And um, the objective in Pentathlon was you had to ride a strange horse. So the organisers would supply a pool, a pool of horses uh, say there was 20 horses and 40 competitors, or horses would go around twice. You just basically drew a number out of a hat and that that horse was that number was allocated to a horse and you had 20 minutes to warm it up, get used to it, and uh, off you went. And I, I loved it. And, you know, the, the, the challenge of um, working out the personality of a horse, if it was a really active, keen horse or something that was a bit sluggish and you had to encourage a little bit more, was... Um, really drew on your skill sets and uh but so it as a sport you know, it relied a lot on not just a physical aspect but really thinking things through and also being really sympathetic sympathetic and aware of the horse that you're riding there was a lot to it and it was incredibly um satisfying to get to a point where i felt like i was a competent rider and do you think because it wasn't the horse that you always rode and you had to draw the horse made it um, the competition a bit more open because you don't know what horse you're going to get? Yeah, it was a big leveller. It was a big leveller. But, look, if you can ride well, you know, you're, you're going to consistently over the year do well. You're always going to have that one horse that you don't get on with or that one experience where, you know, you, you don't do well. But it, it levels itself out. You just hope that it doesn't happen on the big occasions. And, um yeah, the poor riders, are, the the weaker riders are not going to perform that well that often. But yeah, look, look, I I took the mindset that a lot. Interestingly enough, a lot of guys would go, "Oh, you have got to ride some rough horses," and so you know, pretty yeah, because you never know what you're gonna gonna get when you go overseas. But I was of the mindset you you just get on the best horses you can and you work on your technique. One, it's more enjoyable. To you improve and and then when you do get a bad horse, if you've got solid technique and you've got uh, confidence, you're the best option to be able to master that horse and do well. Now talking about horse, my wife's got a couple of horses at Terry Hills out there, and mate, they're they're not cheap to keep. I tell you that. Uh, (laughs) Now, is there any hope for me? I'm 54. I can't ride. She's trying to get me to ride. Do you recommend me trying or not? Well, <laughs> first off the bat, I'd say find another coach. 
<laughs> it wouldn't be healthy on the relationship, man. I can only imagine. <laughs> but um, look, yeah, look, it is a sport where any sport or any anything in life seems to be easier to do if you've done it when you're young. But I would imagine that um, with something like horse riding, you know, what is what is the objective? Like, you know, you don't all need to go to the Olympic Games to be a great horse rider. <laughs> it might just be totally recreational. So, yeah, look, I would encourage it to anyone as a sport to take up. <laughs> Mate, now, out that way, I remember we were talking a while ago and Duffy's Forest and, and Terry Hills and that was where you rode a, a fair bit. But you're telling me how different it is back then than what it is today where the, the prices of, of the properties out there are millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, mate, it was um, it was a tip, it was a tip and a quarry, and there was uh every so often there'd be some acreage with uh, you know, some horse people there or, or all sorts of weird characters out there, and it, there was old cars, you know, just cluttered around the place and it, old wire fences, and, and it was quite amazing. If you go out there now, it's like just so gentrified, and there's so many mansions and and flash cars and helicopters. There's everything out there, and it, yeah, it makes you feel old in some ways. But um, <laughs> it, yeah, look, it, it's just amazing. I guess Sydney all over has changed, but somewhere like Terry Hills, where it's just the contrast over thirty year period is is incredible. Must have been amazing to ride back in those days at Terry Hills because it would have been what, a lot more open, more area to ride. Yeah, look, the eighties. It was there. There was. Um, the 80s was like a little bit less, there's a few less rules and less regulations, but we still had sort of ranges that probably didn't want you in different areas, but there was a lot of uh, understanding and compromise on that. And then at the same time, there was guys on trail bikes and it was a little bit before mountain biking and, and there was the odd runner that, or bushwalker around, but people tended to just be able to access and do things and, and there was a little bit less conflict and people respected each other but it was a it was a playground you know terry hills that area it was it was a beautiful pristine bush and it was just a privilege to be able to get out there and, and do things like that now learning to just shoot a gun was that difficult the, the pistols part of the uh competition yeah yeah look um similar it took a few years it took a few years it took uh quite a bit of frustration and patience and like Earlier, I, I compared fencing to uh, boxing with uh, with pistol shooting. I'd, I'd compare it to like putting in golf. You know, it's um, when you're on, you're on, and, and when you're off, you're off. But you know, the the better shooters have the good sound technique and the right temperament, and they do it more and more consistently. But it's almost um, impossible to explain. Some people just never get it. Some people don't have the temperament for shooting, and uh, I, I, I found that I um, could shoot quite well, but sort of I had to compete a lot. I had to compete, you know, and get sort of like race fit for shooting. I found at the start of the year I was a bit scratchy, but uh, as as the uh, season went on, I, I usually improved a lot. Now you're saying it, ta- it took like three years uh, for pistol shooting, the fencing. It took a bit of time. At what point did you think I'm getting close to having a chance to make the Olympic Games? Yeah, um, 
Yeah, look, so like I said, it was a vehicle for travel originally. But uh, you, you were competing, I was competing overseas against the same, you get to know the athletes. So I, I was realising after the first few years at um, international events and training with people that uh, I was really starting to become competitive and I knew the areas that I had to work on. So it it wasn't like a light bulb moment by any means. It just became a realisation that if I just keep working and uh, if I keep tinkering with my training and, and, and the way that I approach things that I'm going to keep improving and, you know, that will lead to the possibility of competing at the Olympics. You know, I, I had to qualify. There's, in, in my day, we were fortunate when we actually got to the Games the year before we had qualified as a team of three. So there was myself, Alex Watson, and another guy that started at the same time as I did called Gavin Lackey. And uh, we all lived around the same area. Yeah, look, uh, it just wasn't a light bulb moment by any means. It just was a, a lifestyle that I'd chosen and I just felt that I could, you know, I was passionate about it. I could push myself and I could see myself improving it. It wasn't like I had this objective, even though I'd said earlier that it was my dream to go to the Olympics. My objective was just the next event or the next time to go overseas and, and things to improve on. It was incremental. Yeah. And what was it like when you made the Olympic team when that announcement came out? Mate, it was um, it was a relief, a relief, because actually, like I said earlier, we, we qualified as a team the year before. So we knew we had three athletes that could go to the Barcelona Olympics, but that could be any three athletes within Australia. And um, we had a selection process, which was three events, over about six to eight weeks, as would be the first event, I was sick. <laughs> so I performed miserably. And uh, uh, the other two guys, Alex and Gavin, uh, finished first and second. The selectors then decided, well, look, we're really happy with Alex and Gavin's results. Mate, you guys are in. And it left me out there on my own competing against one other guy in particular, but two or three other athletes that um, I was you know, expecting I should beat, but at the same time you suddenly feel very vulnerable. And uh, I did the two next selection trials and I won them. But uh, the time in between the events, the sleepless nights and the preparation and the the negative thoughts that went through your head, you know, it was um, like nothing else I'd ever experienced. And, and to actually win those two events and I performed really well, was incredibly satisfying and uh, a little bit surprising. But uh, and then to, to at the end of that get named in the team is, was a relief more than anything. So getting named in the team came after the you know you were sick the first one you had to perform the next two. The mental side of it, like how down were you in that period? Oh, it's hard to describe. It you couldn't be down. You just had to manage your thoughts and you just had to, yeah, I had six, seven years of competition behind me to fall back on. So I just remind myself of, you know, what I was capable of. And, yeah, I just, it was a really sort of, it was, I never really had any access or, or knowledge of sports psychologists or stuff. I, I relied on Alex, my uh, one of 
my teammates, who's very much a mentor. So he was very, very helpful, and my parents and coaches that were around. But you know, look, ninety-five percent of it was just up to you. You you have to just tough it out. You have to manage it, and you know what is required to perform at your best, and you just have to remind yourself of that. So when you then did perform, in hindsight, looking back, was there anything you did different to come out and win those events? Yeah, look, you know what, I think uh, like as a whatever you're doing in life, you know, you, you, you can get comfortable and, and like leading up to the years before, I was training really hard, training really hard. I love training and I competed well. I guess in hindsight that those two trials that I had to perform in, the difference was the level of mental application I applied to them. Everything was just I couldn't afford to make an error. So I probably um, never really achieved that very, again, really uh, that level of like at a competitive level, I never really achieved that sort of level of concentration or or application to, you know, the pressure I was under was totally on my shoulders and I just knew that there was only one way that I could achieve what I wanted and it was it was um, purely a mental process. So now you've made the team, it's the 92 Olympics at Barcelona, you, you land over there, how, like, what was that feeling like? Yeah, look, Barcelona... I think we lucked out on uh, Olympic destinations. Uh, either side of me was 88 was Seoul and no disrespect to Seoul. I'm sure it's a beautiful city. And, uh, but you know, Barcelona, it's just, it's like the Sydney of Europe. I think it's on the, on the coast, it's sunshine. The people are amazing. And yeah, on the other side of that was Atlanta in 96. And, you know, I've got no desire to go there. No disrespect to the people of Atlanta. <laughs> so I, I lucked out. It was a beautiful, beautiful location. And it, it reminded me, it reminded all of us of, of Sydney a lot. It was on the on the Mediterranean. There was uh, sailing clubs and, and beach clubs. And, and every day before the games, started for the first two weeks we were just running up and down the foreshore and at the end of our run we'd have a swim in the ocean and we'd go back to our apartment and have <laughs> breakfast it was it was like being on the northern beaches <laughs> and with your competition that that was early in the the start of the olympic games yeah mate again we lucked out we were the first day of competition so we were amongst the first group of athletes to arrive in the village two weeks before uh, our event and we we had it was probably some of the best time there we just had this beautiful preparation where we trained and uh we, we could be untouched you know it was just a great great time and then yeah our, our event was the first day we still did the opening ceremony which uh people may have frowned upon but look, it was all part of the experience for us and uh yeah it was amazing and how did you perform in the olympics was it something you expected or oh, mate, in, not expected? In hindsight, I, I didn't do very well. You know, five events is uh, is always going to be difficult to to do really well anyway. But my biggest problem was that the first day of competition was the fencing, which was my weakest event. And um, guys that I've been competing against for five or six years, and you know them 
really, really well. And you know what they're capable of. It's amazing the Olympics, everyone is just on. And I was like applying myself to the best of my ability and I think I was fencing as best I've ever fenced in my life, but so was everyone else. And uh, it's it's confronting, mate. It's just it is a real battle. So I, I did, uh, in hindsight, yeah, I've always wanted to have done better. But the first day of competition being the fencing was uh, just uh, unfortunate for me. And is that a, a draw on what event goes first in order? No, no, the 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 uh, routine had been set well in advance. It pentathlon's a strange sport, and, and it's. Yeah, look, it is in some ways a fringe sport. It's quite really popular in Europe, but it's been tinkered with and um, changed around many times over the years. But uh, when I started, actually, there was five events over five days. And by the time I got to the Games, there was five events over three days. And the fence was the first event. The ride was the last event, which was sort of unfortunate because the best format, I believe, was when the run was the last event. So it was a staggered finish. So they had, they they calculated your points and then basically when you started the run, the first person to cross the line was the winner. So, um, look, it's one of those sports like many it's been tinkered with and mixed up and it's actually going through some really bad times at the moment. But, uh, yeah, look, it, it changed all the time. Now, mate, you finished early in the uh, competition, so you had plenty of time after with the other sports were, were starting. What, what's it like living in the Olympic Village? <laughs> yeah, look, we're really fortunate. It was, it was back in the 90s before social media. And like on, in the news at the moment, they're talking about just limiting the uh, time in the Olympic Village to just two nights, which I, I understand the argument behind it, but, geez, I'm so grateful that uh, when I was there, it was uh, such an extended period because it, it very much is the whole sort of strategy about the start of the Olympic Games was, was around participation. It was about people coming together and, and doing the best they can at something, and but also meeting up and socialising. And, and for me, I guess... The best thing about being in the village after my event was the, the access to other other sports people and to go and watch them compete. I really remember, like, for example, um, the soccer guys. They, there was Mark Bosnich and Ned Zelich and, and the myriad, like all these guys just, just in the apartment below us. And um, they're like, hey, come and watch us play. We, you know, we're, we're playing Poland tonight or we're going to be in the semis. And... and um, I remember walking to the cafeteria. It was like the first week we're there and like Ned Zelich is there, he's having a good chat. And then Mark Bosnich just turns around and goes, hi, I'm Mark Bosnich. I go, yeah, I know, mate, you pay for Man United. <laughs> but top guys, really accessible, really friendly. And they go, yeah, we'll get your tickets, come and watch us play. And, and I did that for the athletics. I did it for the soccer. I went to the judo. Uh, look, it's, it was just an amazing experience that you, you probably value more when you get older. And you would have met so many people that, that were international superstars and then suddenly you're in the village with them. Yeah. Oh, well, there was, there was a lot of talk back then because, like, the Barcelona Dream Team wouldn't stay in the village. Yeah, I was thinking that's just going to be all the mug punters, you know, like myself. But, um, <laughs> look, Goran Evanisevic, really interesting guy, just 
it was like he was living the dream there. He made himself accessible to everyone. He, he'd pretty much walk around and just say, hi, I'm Goran, and shake your hand. It was pretty amazing. Uh, and a lot of the tennis players, I, I saw Boris Becker, I saw Steffi Graf, and they were, it wasn't like you just saw them. They actually would, at different times, say hello and have a chat. Yeah, look, it, it, it is what you imagine, you know. You're walking around the village, you go to, to eat or you walk down to the beach and, you know, there's, um, yeah, like there's Steffi Graf having a swim. And, yeah, you don't get in their face or anything like that, but it, it, it is a situation where people are aware of each other and you see each other every day, so you do start to sort of say hello or have a chat. Did you think before that, they, you know, they may have been a bit standoffish and, and done their own thing? Oh, I mean, yeah, definitely, but it wasn't like... It wasn't like every athlete was like that. It was just my experience with one or two or three athletes that you did see regularly. They they would, would uh, start to recognise you or have a chat and I got introduced to them originally by someone else. But, but there was other people there, obviously, they don't want to know you. You know, They, they are just in their lane and, and fair enough to them. A lot of them have still got competition to do. You, you're very aware of that and I think that's the, the big thing at the moment with this conversation around athletes staying in the village because once the swimmers finish after the first week or two there's definitely a um a change of mindset in that village and it's not the swimmer's fault by any means it's just the the fact that i think it tips from you've got more athletes in the village who have finished competing than you do have athletes that are still waiting to compete and it's how how do you stop you know that release that once you've finally completed what you set out to do for the last four years, you, you do start to relax, you party. There's a lot of partying going on. But um, but it's more, I think, you know, just people are just like taking a big breath out and just, I'm over, I'm finished. Let's, you know, start chatting. Let's go to events. Let's do all this stuff. Well, as you said, imagine the pressure of the build-up and it's the pinnacle of their career. It's the Olympic Games and... Then when it's all done and dusted, you've got to let your head out a little bit. Yeah, it's human nature, mate. It's absolutely. <laughs> well, you, people might frown on it, but I don't. Yeah, I think everyone understands it. You know, especially everyone's in their early twenties, and just it's such a release. Oh, I didn't see anything that was I would call controversial, but it's just the village is just a snapshot of society. So you know, everyone's having a great time and. They're in an environment where it's it is a little bit unreal. So, uh, oh, again, you, know, you think back now and and you think, well, wow, that was incredible. When you're living it, it's actually quite familiar because you you've trained up to that point. You know a lot of the people that you're associating with, associating with every day. That's what you're familiar with, and you take it for granted. And you're probably a little bit arrogant. Most athletes are definitely selfish slightly arrogant so it's hard to drop your guard so when they finally do it's kind of like it's really cool yeah well i mean look you look at people they're going out every weekend in normal society they're doing what they were doing after a a competition the the olympic games goes on pretty much every weekend so there's nothing out of the ordinary really it's just that they're higher profile yeah exactly especially in that 12 months leading up to the games i definitely did changed my lifestyle I you know, stopped drinking I stopped going out you sacrifice things and and you do tell yourself once those games finish like 
oh, I'm going to be able to do all those things again. It's, it's, it's not like you even miss them, but you remind yourself that that's going to be your reward. Look, after Barcelona, we went to Mallorca for three weeks. Now, a couple of mates from Pentathlon, and, and, mate, we had the most amazing time. And, and that was our reward. And I'm sure every athlete and every, you know, event has a similar mindset. And you do that in any walk of life. Now, after the, that's all done, you're finished with the sport. Did you retire from the sport after that or you tried to make the, the following Olympics in Atlanta or what happened then? No, mate. Um, I was 26 and I had always paid my way. I, I worked. I was a graphic artist by uh, profession. I did a trade course in the print industry and, and I worked in a few different agencies and stuff. And I, all the time that I trained I, I worked either full-time or part-time my passion was always pentathlon and, and and competing so I'd neglected that part of my life considerably and so I was really aware that you know at 26 years of age if I don't get my act together I am gonna be behind the eight ball professionally but um yeah I for for about four years so the, you know, the next four years of my life, I, I just worked in that profession, but it was sort of a dying profession where it was turning, becoming more and more computerised, like many aspects of life. And so being not very confident in that area already, I was sort of stagnant. I, I kind of realised that, you know, I need to start applying myself to, to professional growth. I was sort of doing a pretty poor job of it. Actually, I was still making up for lost years of partying hanging out with my mates and um, pretending to possibly study a little bit and, and had set myself some goals, but uh, not really making them. It took a while. And did you find that transition difficult, you know, from an elite athlete into, you know, getting back into a working life and, and more structure? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, look, I think that, the reality is you, you're really confident as an athlete in what you do, but it's a bit of a charade for other aspects of life, you know, and I've met a lot of athletes over the years and I see it. I don't need, even really, really really need to talk to them about it. You can see it. It's really, you know, you're so confident at one thing and everyone knows you for it and they all want to talk to you about it. It's very hard to then go and talk to people about other aspects of life, especially professional life where they – possibly they're going to know more than you. So, and it becomes hard to ask questions of, oh, how do you do that? Or how do you apply yourself? Or how do I reach the same level there? Because often they don't want to hear it from you because they, they treat you differently because you've done this thing that they often think is incredible. So it, it's, it's a really difficult transition. And the key to it for me, and it took me ages to work it out, is to ask questions and learn how to communicate. Well, mate, you got into the business, but then you also started ocean ski paddling. Now, when did you start that? Why did you get into the the ocean? Mate, actually only started about six years ago. And in between that, I've always done sport. I played a lot of tennis, actually. So from the age of 26, when I finished the Olympics, for pretty much 20, 30 years, I, I eventually got married and had kids. And, and I, I played a lot of tennis, but I think uh, as my kids got to around five, six, seven years old, and you kind of, you know, you do, you need something in your life. And I, I was thinking, well, 
I've always kind of been on the ocean and I've always known a lot of guys that paddled and it just makes sense as a sport for me because it's, it's there's no wear and tear on the body or little wear and tear on the body. And um, it's a growing sport. So I did see a lot of skis going around on cars and are increasing in my area. So I, I just reached out and, and got involved. And, uh, it, yeah, look, I didn't know I, I needed it, but, geez, it's been a really big part of my life over the last six or seven years. Now, for all the young ones listening, there's a lot of followers that, that listen to the podcast. Is that something you, that you would recommend because is to get into some sort of sport and exercise that really helps you mentally? Yeah, absolutely. I Look, life is a balance. You know, you've you, you got to have your passions that you follow, but unless you're like the best in the world at something, you can't commit yourself 100% to one given thing. You need to have that balance. So if you're a great athlete or if you're uh, uh, these days, I don't know, if you're great at esports or, or whatever it is, you can't just commit to one thing and you need to, uh, it sounds, geez, I sound old, but you need to look ahead. <laughs> you need to project forward, say, what will I be doing in 20 years' time? What do I want to do? Where am I going to be? So, yeah, definitely, if you've got something that you're passionate about, follow it through and commit to it. But always, you know, keep your eye on other channels of, of life and say, you know, I need to study or I need to at least have thoughts around what I'm going to do going forward. Mate, good advice and a bit different to the 22-year-old hammer. <laughs> the 22, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, mate. Mate, I, yeah, yeah, look, you, you, like I said, I felt old saying this because you're aware of that. I was aware of that when I was 22. Yeah, look, I, I can't, probably can't do this forever, but you, you're just in the moment, mate. You live in the moment. Well, Hamo, mate, it's a great story. It's been it's been really good having a chat. And, you know, to make the Olympic Games, you should be very proud. No matter what sport you do, to make the Olympic Games is an, a massive achievement. Mate, thank you. I really appreciate that. Mate, now at the end of the interview, I'm going to throw uh, my five fun facts. I'm going to throw some questions at you. So be ready for these, mate. I'm going uh, to put you on the spot. I'll put you on the spot a little bit. Mate, the first one, what are the best and worst purchases you ever made? Oh, wow. Um, on the back of this conversation, I have to say I, I really remember my first ever um, flight ticket overseas. It was 1989. I'd been overseas before, but this is the first time I left on my own. And I, I had a really loose itinerary, but I just basically had a series of events that I wanted to compete in overseas. And a few friends that said that put me up. So, yeah, buying that flight that ticket. Mate, uh, the best country in the world. Yeah, right. Like obviously Australia and, and being born in New Zealand, I, I'm sympathetic to, you know, familiar to that. But uh, look, Spain. Let's go to Spain. Yeah. But what are, the, what are you most proud of? Yeah, look, to be honest, you know, like, you know I'm, I'm married with two kids, which I'm immensely proud of. But more, yeah, look, health, I think. You know, I'm 57 and I'm still, I'm still active and healthy. I'm capable of doing pretty much anything, not to the level that I once did, but I actually, I reflect back on it a lot. If, if you told me when I was 22 that when I'm 57, I'd be doing the things that I'm doing and competing and enjoying it just as much as I did back then, I, I wouldn't have believed you. So, yeah, look, I really think my health is a, the thing I'm most proud of. 
Right. What's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? <laughs> Mate, uh, yeah, look, I, I'm not a huge reader. I, I worked in, actually, I worked in newspapers for years, so I always keep a, across the news and sport, but um. Oh, wow, look, to be honest, mate, I'm in a few chat groups. So I've um I've read a lot of yeah, what well, I keep up with a lot of my mates for our chat groups and we have really good banter and good fun. So I'm gonna say chat groups. <laughs> Very good. But what song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? <laughs> this goes back to the in the nineties with I think everyone would sing along to Wonderwall. Yeah. Oasis. <laughs> Before you know, before the music got too techo, just a you know good old fashioned band. Yeah, I like the old school, mate. It's perfect. Yeah. All right, thanks, Hamo, mate, for uh, coming in the beach shack, having a chat. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I'll catch you uh, on the water, mate. Have a paddle. Thanks, mate. I appreciate it, and I look forward to uh, catching up. Now it's time. To have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from Lisa and she is uh, from Adelaide. I'm enjoying Bondi Rescue and I'm learning a lot of water safety through the TV show. You guys look like you have a lot of fun. Is uh, that how it is in real life? Well, Lisa, thanks for your letter. Yes, look, we do have a lot of uh, fun down at the beach and a lot of banter and and bagging each other. And that's something that probably gets us through the days because on the flip side, we do have a lot of stressful situations and some tragic situations. So you need to keep it lighthearted to overcome the tough stuff. But uh, yes, what you see on TV is uh, basically what happens in real life. So thanks Lisa for your letter and, uh, I'll catch you all again next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.